joy to be with you. My voice might be actually a little lower than normal this morning. I'm at the very tail end of a cold. So anyway, sorry if I'm rumbling a little bit today. But uh, it's been a, really, a real joy to be with you on this journey as you discern how it is that connect, being connected to a broader association of churches can better strengthen and, and serve you as you seek to fulfill uh, God's great commission here in the Milwaukee area. And so we're just praying for discernment along with you on that journey and just are so thankful to be a part of it with you as well. So on behalf of the 140 congregations in the state of Wisconsin and the Upper Peninsula of uh, Michigan, uh, I bid you hello. So uh, it's, it's good to be with you and it's an honor to serve you in this way today. Uh, the mission of the Evangelical Free Church of America is to glorify God by multiplying transformational churches among all people. And it's our agenda to cooperate with God as he seeks worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. As disciples are made, what, they, they're gathered together in groups which become churches, lighthouses of gospel transformation within the lives of every believer, but also for the good of the communities in which these churches exist. And it's this work, this building of the church that we're going to be focusing on today from Matthew 16, 30 through 20. Now, as we prepare to jump into these verses, I want to get you thinking about a few things. First of all, if you're less familiar with the Bible, it's helpful to know that the Gospel of Matthew that we read those verses from, uh, it's one of four historic accounts of the life of Jesus. Now, one thing that we should keep in mind whenever we read a historic book like this is that we have much more information than the original audience, okay? We need to remind ourselves that in this section of scripture in particular, Jesus' audience had little to no idea that the cross was coming. Um, and, and so uh, they had an incomplete understanding of who it is that Jesus was and what his ultimate purpose was on earth. And so with that in mind, today we're going to see a major historic turning point in the disciples' understanding of Jesus' identity. And this understanding is going to put them more clearly on the path to the cross and the implications of the cross for God's people. Now, when it comes to the context of the passage, we know from previous verses that Jesus, he had been ministering in the region of the Sea of Galilee, and it's in the heart of Jewish territory. So wherever he went, he was getting quite popular at this time in his ministry, and large crowds would follow him. But from the first few verses of today's passage, we see that Jesus took his disciples from that region up to the Gentile, Gentile city of Caesarea Philippi, which was 25 miles north, the very outskirts of Jewish territory. And so here, Jesus would have been less recognized, and it would have afforded him the ability to gather with his disciples in a more intimate way. Um, but there was a lot more going on with the location than just to get away from the crowds. You see, Caesarea Philippi was known as a center of spiritual activity in the Roman Empire. Um, the city was named after Caesar, uh, the regional leader, uh, Herod Philip as well. And so, so those names were enshrined together, Caesarea Philippi. And this, the previous name of the city before it was named that was Panias, which was after the Greek god Pan, who was half human, half goat, known as the god of nature. 
And so in, in honor of Pan, there was this large uh, temple made out of marble that was the center of all kinds of pagan or non-Christian spiritual type worship. And so it's in this context, okay? It's in the center of the capital of pagan spirituality that Jesus has this conversation with his disciples. And so with that in mind, let's jump back into the text. I'm just going to look first at verses 13 and 14. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, what's helpful to understand here is that in Jewish culture, it was common for a prophetic mantle to be passed from one prophet to the next. So from the prophet Elijah, who was taken up into the heavens, we read about that in the Old Testament, the spirit of Elijah was passed to Elisha. And, and back earlier in this book, in Matthew 14, Herod, who executed John the Baptist, feared that Jesus was now a resurrected version of John the Baptist. Now, to be clear, they didn't believe in reincarnation in the Jewish worldview, but the idea here was more of a succession of role or responsibility. And so the speculation uh, of the people was that Jesus was somehow assuming the role of a previous prophet. And the main point is this, people had no idea of his true identity. Though, though they were biblically or scripturally literate, there was a loss as to who he truly was. His identity was shrouded in, in mystery. Now, if you think about it, there is some parallel between that audience and the audience in our community today, thinking in particular of Milwaukee. I'm sure if you went out uh, on the streets and you asked people who Jesus is, uh, most would give a favorable answer, probably, right? And yet, if you drill down into the finer points, well, who was Jesus? What did he come to earth to do? Uh, what you discover is that there's a strong variety of knowledge and awareness of his purpose on earth. And so there's a general religious knowledge of Jesus, and yet the finer points of his ministry and his ultimate purpose and the meaning of the cross and resurrection and all those things are, are mystery to a lot of people. And so there definitely are some parallels between this original audience and where it is that we are today. Now back to, back to the text, what we're going to see next is that Jesus now turns the question of his identity to his disciples. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And now we come to one of the more important historic moments in the book of Matthew. Peter, known as Simon Barjona here in the text this time, he, he makes this famous confession to Jesus. And, and it's so important that theologians have even given this a name, the Petrine Confession. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, at the risk of underestimating the significance of this moment, 
I, I want to remind you again, like most of us have read the Gospels. Many have read or heard some of these stories before. We've heard countless sermons, some of us, and maybe Easter messages. But it needs to land on us in this way. Nowhere in history before this moment had human lips ever spoken the combination of thoughts that Peter articulated. Nowhere had there been this measure of clarity in that time regarding Jesus' identity. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, to, to clarify the significance of this claim, uh, we need to remember what Jesus said. Uh, we need to think, first of all, of, of who Jesus was. What, what was his claim? What did it represent? You see, to say Jesus was the Messiah was to recognize that he was the one who was prophesied about. So for thousands of years, uh, these Old Testament prophets had been talking about a Messiah who would come to, to rescue uh, the Jews from slavery, to, to usher in a season of peace and rule in, in Israel. And so Peter first exclaimed this, right? He said, Jesus is the messianic hope of Israel. But then he took it a step further when he claimed that Jesus was also the Son of God. Now, in our understanding of the Jewish worldview of that day, there was no expectation that the Messiah would also be divinity. So it was a radical concept that Peter was articulating here. He was proposing that he is the Christ, the Messiah, but also the Son of the living God. Now again, if you think I'm overstating the significance of this moment, look at Jesus' response in verse 17. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So why was Jesus so delighted? Why was he excited in this moment? Well, quite simply, he saw that God the Father had been working in Peter's heart. Just a few chapters before, in chapter 14, Peter was rebuked by Jesus as one with little faith. And now he stood before Jesus speaking with bold clarity. So Jesus knew that Peter's understanding could not have come from himself or his own wisdom or from flesh and blood. No, this could only come because of the work of God the Father in his heart. Now, I don't know how many of you have had the privilege of seeing hearts transformed by God. I'm sure for many of you, you wouldn't be here probably if you haven't seen it in your own life. But there really is nothing sweeter than to get a front row seat in seeing a life transformed. Recently, one of our Hmong church plants in Madison had this opportunity to see a, an entire family radically transformed by the gospel. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Hmong culture, but uh, there are, are over 100,000 in the state of Wisconsin, and I think there's about 12,000 here in Milwaukee, maybe even more. Uh, the Hmong, they came to Wisconsin as refugees, fleeing political pers persecution following the Vietnam War. And, and with them came this religious identity of animism, a pagan religious system where shamans, okay, like witch doctors, they would function as priests who would exercise spirits in uh, present in animals, plants, and the weather, and all sorts of things. And, and uh, there is a, a recent convert in this church that was the son of a shaman raised in this tribal religion. And they'd been ministering 
to him for some time. But you see, uh, one thing that's really common with Hmong animists is that, that they're often tortured by demonic dreams that, that, are, that are quite terrifying and, and relentless. And, and, and with his shaman parent now passing away and having passed away, he was finally released to listen and consider the gospel that had been preached to him. And so Pastor Paul and his wife, Shang, appealed to him once again to, to follow Christ. And by grace, he put his faith in Christ and his life was transformed. And in that moment, like so many Hmong animists, he was immediately set free from the demonic dreams. And his whole family came to faith in Christ. And his life was, was radically transformed. And so it's a response to stories like that. And it's a response to stories of, of small and large transformation, both in your life and in the life of others, that we join Jesus as he said to Peter, you are blessed, child of God, because the Father in heaven is changing you. You didn't learn this from someone. You didn't simply figure it out. No, it's the Spirit of God through God the Father and His grace transforming your heart, opening your eyes to see that which previously was unseen. And so that's what we're celebrating today. That's what Jesus is testifying about in the life of Peter. So now that Jesus' identity was revealed, okay, through the confession of Peter, we're going to make two more important historical observations in the text. Observation one is this, the purpose of Jesus to build the church, and observation two, the position of Peter and the power of the keys. So let's look first at the purpose of Jesus to build the church. We see this first statement in the second half of verse 18. You can follow along here again. Second half of 18, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what's Jesus first saying here? I mean, one of the big statements he's saying is this, quite simply, he's going to build the church. Okay, what's interesting here is that, that this is the first time, again, this is such an amazing text. It's the first time Jesus used the word church. Now, in the original Greek, that word is ekklesia, which means assembly. So what Jesus is saying here is, I'm going to build my assembly, my people. And what's helpful to understand is that Throughout all of scripture, it is pointing to this exact same end, the building of God's people for himself. And so, so in many ways, Jesus is not saying anything new. He is restating something that has been clear from the beginning of scripture. And we see the fulfillment of this at the very end of scripture in Revelation, where it talks about the assembly, that there's going to be a new kingdom, a new city, a new, a new people set aside for God. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And so what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, Is this assembly that's coming together that will be one day consummated in the new heaven and new earth? that he is here to build that assembly, his church, the people of God. But Jesus makes another truth claim here as well. He says, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, there's a few ways that we can look at this. The first is this. 
that the gates of hell represent the attack of the enemy, the devil, against the church. It's consistent to think this because we know in Ephesians 6 that our battle, it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and spiritual powers of the heavenly realms. So, so to be a church on mission, to be an assembly of God's people in a local context here, it's, it's assuming that you're facing a spiritual battle, but that in that battle, those gates of hell, they cannot overcome you. So that's one way of seeing this. Another, another way of interpreting it, uh, it, it's hinted at in the location of the teaching, okay? So remember, Jesus is delivering this teaching in Caesarea Philippi, the capital of pagan spirituality. And in that city, at the time where Jesus was teaching, there was a, a cave entrance from which a river flowed. And in, the, in that river, it came from a deep spring in that cave that was literally by those spiritual people of the day believed to be the passage into the afterlife. And so it's against this backdrop, this, this passage from life to death, that he makes this claim that the entrance of hell, the, the gates of Hades, right, it will not overcome the church. And so the reference may also have implications for this idea that, that, that the work of, uh, of Jesus in building the church is going to overcome the power of sin and death. So there's some, some, some depths of meaning here. And, and so we see these two meanings, right? One, that the power of Satan and spiritual realm will not overcome the church, and meaning, too, that the church will overcome the power of sin and death through the saving grace of, of God. Now, so let's think about application a little bit. Think about it in your context, okay? Here's Crossway Church in Milwaukee. You are an assembly of God's people. So the first observation I want you to think about is this, that God is building the church. So you don't build the church. Your pastors, past, present, and future, don't build the church. The quality of your programs or the niceness of this room doesn't build the church. Jesus builds the church. So, so just so you're not mistaken, he is the one who's doing the work here. So you can, can, can conclude this. No matter how strong your systems or, or nice the room in which you are or great your preaching, Jesus gets the credit. You hear me? Jesus gets the credit. If anything good or fruitful happens in this place, it's the work of God in and through you and often in spite of you, right? To advance his plans and his purposes. So that's the first thing we can see and we, we need to embrace and, and really think through the meaning of that. The second observation is that God's at work here to turn back the power of sin and Satan in your lives, in this church, and in this community. And so we can safely conclude that because you're an assembly of God's people, you're an expression of this church, you are engaged in spiritual battle. And so you, you mustn't get surprised when you face hardship. You know, we just heard a story of a woman who was attacked, right? You mustn't get surprised when you face persecution. Why? Because Jesus is, is really alluding to this idea the gates of hell are against us, right? So, so in the brokenness of this world, in the darkness of these days, you must remember that no matter the opposition you feel, the hardships you face, the coming and going of leaders, uh, no matter pandemics or political controversy, 
At the end of the day, you can rest assured that God will overcome, and he's going to do it through the building of his assembly, the people of God. So take heart this morning. He's going to do it. He's going to do it, and he's choosing to do it in this local expression, this assembly of the church. And so we've seen that the purpose of Jesus is what? To build the church, and that the power of Satan and sin, it cannot overcome it. And now let's look at this next little section, the the position of Peter and the power of the keys. Okay, let's look at verse 18 together. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, it's worth noting that Peter was known as Simon, right? We see Simon Barjona up to this point. And so he's now given a new name by Jesus. Again, pretty cool. This moment in history, he's given a new name. And what was that name? It was Petros or, or Peter, which means rock. And, and what was the, the position of Peter? Um, I believe, and I'll kind of unpack this just for a moment, but believe that he would be the rock, right? Upon which the church would be built. Now, there are some traditions, many of which maybe you grew up in, there's some traditions which would read these words and they would see that in this moment, Peter was given this enduring uh, position of power and authority by Jesus. In these traditions, that they view Peter as the father of the church, uh, as a man with great authority, whose enduring leadership is, is that upon which the true church is built. But to enshrine Peter this way, it doesn't really make sense with what we see of Peter throughout the rest of Scripture. Let me just illustrate this. You see, a few verses later, Jesus rebukes Peter, calling him the devil, right? He's saying, get behind me, Satan. Uh, Before Jesus was crucified, Peter denied Jesus three times. In the early church, Paul rebukes Peter for allowing legalism to seep into the church. From Acts 12 forward, which tells of the history of the early church, we see Peter fade into obscurity. We even know from history that it's James, not Peter, who becomes the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem. And and so there is no evidence here that Jesus was giving Peter an enduring position of authority in the church. So what was he saying in verse 18 when he renamed Peter the rock upon which the church would be built? Well, to fully understand the significance, let's look at verse 19. It says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound, I'm sorry, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus calls Peter the rock upon which the church will be built, and then he says, I'm going to give you the keys by which people can be bound and loosed in heaven. So what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Well, what we know about Peter is we do know that he had a unique role in the early days of the church. We can concede that, right? Uh, He preached the first sermon. I'm just going to summarize. We don't have time to look at all these things. But in Acts 2, uh, Peter preached the first sermon. In verse 38, he preached the gospel. He invited people to turn from their sin and to follow Jesus to receive the mercy and grace of God and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, if you read that that chapter, the Spirit was poured out, and according to verse 41, 
3,000 people were added to that number that day who were saved to the church. I mean, it's a significant moment there, right? Uh, in Acts, as we continue to read on, we see that, that Peter preached the gospel with the Jewish council. In chapter 10, he was the first to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews of the day. And upon hearing that gospel, they turned from their sin and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And, and so I, I believe that's evidence of a unique role that, that Peter was, was fulfilling as he was being used of God and, and through Jesus to establish the church. But we also see him wielding the power of the keys that binds and looses people's eternity, right? And I think that's really the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, and this idea of that gospel, let me just make sure it's clear in case you're new, new to the church today. I mean, it's the idea that Jesus came as the son of God to live a perfect life and die a death on the cross that we deserve for sin, so that by trusting in him for the forgiveness of our sins, we are also trusting in his resurrection. As Romans 6, 4 says, in becoming Christians, we're buried with Christ in his death and raised to walk with him and his resurrection is in newness of life. And so the power of the keys are ours. The binding and loosing of gospel power is given to the disciples again in Matthew 18, 18. Just a few chapters later, Jesus states to the broader community of disciples, Today I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, there's a lot more I could say about that, but, but what I, I think we, we can fairly conclude is that the responsibility, uh, in part, first and foremost, is ours to share the gospel, to obey the Great Commission, to declare the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. It also is, I think, implying the, a responsibility for, for leaders and, and, and even associations of churches to protect the integrity of the gospel in the church. Now, as we, as we land the plane on, on, on this text, I want to get real practical with you. Because I think I'd be safe to say there's probably three different kinds of people in this room. So I just want to help you apply this text as we wrap up. The first of you are those who've never placed your faith in Christ. The second of you may be those who are discouraged in your faith because you, you're discouraged by your lack of fruitfulness, perhaps, in your own life and ministry. And the third might be those who are, who are proud, who, who are are yet to recognize that they're powerless to build the church. And maybe, maybe we're all, you know, some degree in those camps. And so for the first, those without faith, I want to remind you of Peter's confession. In verse 16, he said these words, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And with these words, it was like a faith journey for him. It was a faith step recognizing that Jesus alone has the power to save. A power that was on full display on the cross. Again, when he died the death, we deserve for sin. Raising from that death, crushing once and for all the power of sin and death. And so, if you're here this morning, and you're yet to have put your faith in Christ to trust him for the forgiveness of your sin and for the new life that he can bring to you, I just want to encourage you to respond as Peter saying, Christ, you're my savior. You are the son of the living God. I trust you. 
I receive your forgiveness, and I today want to walk in newness of life. And so if that's you, just encourage you to talk to somebody here, one of the leaders, let them know that today is the day in which you took that step. Let's think of the next audience, okay? The person here who is maybe inclined towards discouragement over the perceived lack of fruit in your life. I want you to reflect on what we learned about Peter today. He was a man of great calling, and yet he was also a man who often lacked faith, who denied Christ, who faded into historic obscurity in one sense. Now, why should that encourage us? Well, I think it's because it illustrates how God loves to use weak and broken people, just like Peter, to build his church. Now, I'm not denying, again, that Peter had a unique role. He did. And yet, I think we can all identify with the the idea that his life was an illustration for us, wasn't it? How God loves to use weak people for his eternal purposes. And so, this beautiful idea, it's affirmed again by Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, which says, but he said to me, my grace, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ might dwell in me. And so take heart, if this is you, if this is what you're wrestling with this morning, take heart that this fallen and broken world and your, your fallen and broken inclinations, they're becoming the theater of God's redemption, the place of his mission. And he has given us all authority in heaven and on earth to go and make disciples. He loves to use weak and frail people to shame the strong and powerful. And so if you're discouraged this morning, take heart, resting that the Father Is it work in you? Those feelings of weakness, those feelings of inadequacy, it's the fertile soil in which the work of God can be put on display in more powerful and amazing ways. So embrace your weakness. Embrace your weakness and and let the power of God be displayed through you as he redeems, restores, and uses your story for his glory. And and finally, to to the proud, (laughs) to those of us, and I'm confessing, putting myself in this camp at times for sure, we tend to find our value in our hard work and our performance, thinking, you know, if we just do enough, God's going to do great things through us. And and I want to tell you a little story uh, about the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was living in Wales. He tells this story of a time when he was with a gathering of older ministers. And they were gathered together discussing the ministry of a young pastor who'd come into town. And he had amazing preaching gifts. And this man was famous among the people. And there was real hope that, you know, he was so gifted. There was hope that God would use him to somehow build the church in a powerful way. And the ministers, they were all hopeful as well until one of them spoke up and said this. Well, all well and good, but you know, I don't think he's been humbled yet. And following this statement, Jones said, the other ministers looked very grim. It was at that moment that something landed on Jones that would change his life and his ministry from that day forward. He realized at that moment, that unless something comes into your life 
to break you of your self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, and pride. You may say you believe the gospel of grace, but the penny hasn't dropped. You aren't a sign of the gospel in yourself. You don't have the truth of Peter alive within you. You aren't a strength out of weakness person. And God may need to bring you low before he can truly use you to build the church.